Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, Kurt Ellis, co-founder and executive director of the National Service Program, Food Corps. Kurt grew up in Oregon and found his passion for food and agriculture at both the Mountain School and in Yale University. And at Yale, Kurt accomplished an enormous amount uh, that's seen even at Yale today uh, in programs like the Yale Sustainable Food Project. After graduating from Yale with, with a good friend of his, Ian Cheney, and with Aaron Wolf, moved to Iowa to look at corn and how corn is grown and what sorts of food products it goes into and other products as well. And from this came an award-winning film known as King Corn. Uh, Kurt has done a number of interesting and important things, but today we're going to talk about the issue of food systems, and then we'll do a second podcast on the food core and its future. So welcome, Kurt. Delighted to have you here. Thanks, Kelly. Nice to be here. The term food systems gets thrown around more and more today, but I think there are a lot of people who don't, don't really know what that term means. And I'd like to give it a definition or just to put it in context. And then we can talk about some of the areas where food systems are so important in our day-to-day lives. So could you say w- what food systems means to you? I, I guess the way I like to think about it is um, food is, uh, is a prism. And if you hold it up to the light, you can see all these different things refracted in that prism. Uh, the way that food is grown and produced and the people who grew it and touched it and harvested it in the field or processed it in a factory, the way that food is marketed and sold to us, the way it's prepared for us or by us, and then its impacts on our health uh, as we eat that food. So if you take the sum total of everything you see when you hold that prism up to the light, um, food pretty quickly comes to touch on all of the issues we care about, environmental sustainability, human health, uh, justice for workers. Um, And all those things at the end of the day really matter if you think about building a food system, building a way of getting uh, an adequate and high quality supply of food to a giant global population in a way that is good for families, good for the land, good for the people who grow and touch the food. That totality of all that stuff really makes up our food system. It seems to me that we've gone through waves where there was a time in the country's history when everybody, most everybody, was involved with production of food in one way or another. Uh, And then we went through industrialization, and people were not involved so much. A lot of people weren't so much involved in the production of their food, but they knew more about it than they do today. They might have known who the farmer was, or there might have been one step between production of the food and them. It might have been a local market or something. And then we went through a period, which is really when I, when I was growing, uh, that where people lost touch with their food altogether. You know, it was, it was in packages, it was in bags, it was in boxes, it was in bottles, and you never knew where it came from or who produced it. Well, how did we ever get to that point? where we so lost contact with it, where our food came from. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, we now have more people living in prisons in the United States than we have living on farms. Um, but if you look at a room full of people and you ask people to raise their hands if they grew up on a farm, uh, you'll get a couple of people. If you ask uh, if their grandparents grew up on the farm, you'll have 20% of the room with hands up. If you ask if their great-grandparents grew up on a farm, 
uh, or involved in farm work in some way, then pretty pretty soon you're at uh, everybody in the room with their hands up. There's this incredible shift that has happened where we have become disconnected from our food. And I think for a long time, we embraced that as a kind of progress. And I think there's been a really interesting realization in the last generation, again, around thinking that food really matters, thinking that those fundamental things of food and water and clothing and shelter are actually the most important things. And um, we have to learn how to reconnect with food in a way that looks out for all those different pieces of light you see refracted in the prism, the workers who touch it, the, the shape of the land, uh, and the, the impact it has on our own health. I guess you can explain part of it, um, but it's, tell me if you agree with me, that just America is so caught up in the idea of value that we want as much as we can get for the smallest amount of money. And as that concept gets applied to food, it means big industrial farms, highly processed foods, excellent tasting things because of the way they're doctored and engineered, et cetera. But is there more to it than that, than just wanting as much as we can get for the smallest price? Well, I mean, I, I think our, uh, our food policy and our food culture is a product of another time. And it's in some ways a, a product of a Depression-era mindset that is focused on uh, fear of limits and fear of not having enough. And um, we, we really built a farm subsidy system. We built a food processing system. We built a food marketing empire around this idea that people need more calories. And the reality is um, there's a lot of food out there. And maybe what we need at this point is a food system that really is geared towards our present reality, which is not one of scarcity so much as one of a need for health and quality. Well, you indicated that more and more people are caring about this. What are the indicators of that? What are the signs you see that that's true? Well, you know, we see it on the on the ground with our own uh, organization, Food Corps, which is like a Peace Corps for school food. And um, we've only been operating for two years now. And both years, we've had more than a thousand people apply to spend a year of their lives uh, in volunteer service as Food Corps service members. And these are talented people who've just graduated from college for the most part, aren't they, who could be doing a lot of different things? Absolutely. Yeah, people are, are uh, saying no to, to high-powered jobs in uh more conventional fields because they see food and farming as a, a valuable and viable career path. But also we see it in farmers markets. The number of farmers markets has rocketed up from a few hundred just a generation ago to now many thousands of farmers markets around the country. Uh, we see it in the, the increase. There's been a small uptick in a certain uh, set of farms around the country. There are now more farms uh, instead of fewer farms, which has been a long-time trend. There are more farms among the smaller-scale farmers, and there's more organic farming going on, and there are more young farmers. That's all very strong, positive change from, from what we the direction we had been going in for a long time. Well, my observation is the same as yours, that there are a lot more people interested in the where their food comes from and the, the, these food systems issues. It seems like People, different people care about it for different reasons. Like there are some people that really care about food for the health, healthiness of it. Other people care about its environmental impact. Other people care about it for animal welfare reasons and things like that. But just take, look, just looking at environmental impact and health, um, there's a very strong case to be made, and I he heard you made it, that something that's good for the environment is also likely to be good for health. Is that true, and how does that ripple into the food system? Sure. I mean, there, there are always exceptions to the rule, but I think um, in that case, it, it really is by and large true. If uh, food is being 
grown in a way that is focused on healthy soil, it's going to be food with good nutrients in it. If uh, food is being grown without chemical pesticides and herbicides, the residues of those pesticides and herbicides aren't going to wind up uh, in your kid's food and in their body. Uh, if livestock are being raised without antibiotics and hormones, the residue of those antibiotics and hormones won't end up in our food supply. Um, so there is a really strong connection between the way our food is produced and the health of that food as we eat it. I've also heard you talk about, and I haven't heard you phrase it like this, but there also seem to be very important psychological advantages to getting people involved in their food systems. And I know you've talked about how kids and school officials can get connected with farmers and how that understanding the chain creates these human connections that haven't existed for a long time. How does that play out? Well, I mean, I th it's it's been 200,000 years that we've been coming together around a table, whether or not the table was in a cave uh, and was a rock or whether it's something that, uh, that you and I are sitting around right now. But um, people really love to connect with each other around food. And you hear people say, oh, food is love. Or you hear people say, oh, food was really important to my, to my family growing up. Or, oh, this tastes just like my grandmother used to make. We really are connected to each other more than anything else, I think, we are connected to each other through that fundamental thing of the food we share together around a table. And you mentioned that the, the consumers of the food are disconnected from the people who produce it. But what about disconnection going in the other directions, the farmers not feeling connected with the people who are consuming their products? Absolutely. That, when we were making our film, King Corn, uh, and living in Iowa, some of the most interesting conversations we had about food were with farmers talking about their feeling of being disconnected from food consumers. And I remember one very large-scale conventional corn farmer uh, telling me that it's, it's a different sense of feeding the world uh, if you really can't have a relationship with the people who buy your food. You just don't think about where it goes and how it gets to the grocery store. So doing more local sourcing of foods and things like farmers markets help recreate those connections that used to exist. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think um, local food systems are one way to really immerse all of us in an understanding of what our ideal food system might look like. I think we're always going to have large scale industrial farms. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think we're always going to have uh, massive amounts of food produced in the corn belt that get eaten in New York City and Los Angeles. I don't think that's a bad thing either. But what we are missing right now and what local food systems and farmers markets and community-supported agriculture farms are starting to bring back is this sense of connection and sense of compassion for the people behind our food and the places behind our food. Now, the people who are listening who haven't had the pleasure of seeing King Corn might assume it's a really good movie because I said it was an award-winning movie. But I can just say from my own personal experience and people I've shown it to, including a lot of students, that it's a very, very powerfully done but humorous, serious movie at the same time. It just, it, there's so much in it that people haven't seen about the food system. So congratulations for producing that. But the question I have is when you produced the film, you made the point that the amount of money that you made from the acre of corn, and maybe you could explain how the acre of corn came about, um, was was more or less what it got sold for. So there was no financial incentive to make it other than government subsidies. I'd like if, if you wouldn't mind explaining that process. And then I'm going to come back and ask you a follow-up question about what might be different now compared to when you made the movie. Great. 
Yeah, so um, we spent a year living in Iowa growing one acre of corn. And this was what year? Uh, this was 2004 and okay. 2005. And uh, I, an acre of corn is, is about the size of a football field. There are 90 million acres of corn grown in America today. There are actually only 70 million acres of corn grown every year then. So there's been a, a big uptick in how much corn we produce. You um, mean between the time you made the movie and now? Yes. Boy. Yeah. Um, but when we were growing our acre of corn, we looked at the statistics for the average corn farm for the state of Iowa. And a typical corn farmer uh, lost money on the open market, growing and selling their corn into the food system. But they made money if you factored in the government subsidy. And uh, the payment you get from the government for growing corn, and these are there are a number of different mechanisms, each one more convoluted than the last, but they're basically all oriented towards promoting production. Uh, those payments were the difference between a profit and loss on the typical acre of corn in 2004. So give us some numbers, if you would. How much money How much money input did it take to create that acre of corn? How much did it sell for in the market, and how much were the subsidies? Not very much. It's, it was about a $200 enterprise to grow an acre of corn because farmers are operating on a massive, massive scale of 1,000-acre farms. And we sold our corn for a little bit less than that. But if we factored in the government subsidy, which was in our case around $25, we would have made a profit. Uh, when you extrapolate up and get to that thousand acre scale, you're talking about significant amounts of money changing hands and a massive amount of federal money being paid to farmers in the Corn Belt to promote the all out production of corn. All right, and you make the point that all that all out production of corn has a cascade of consequences for health and the environment. Could you explain what some of them are? Sure. So our one acre of corn produced a 10,000-pound harvest, uh, an incredible quantity of food, but unfortunately it's, it's food that we probably don't need a lot of in our diet. Uh, our one acre of corn produced enough feed for 4,000 corn-fed hamburgers. It produced enough high-fructose corn syrup to sweeten 57,000 cans of soda. Uh, and those sodas are, are empty calories that are implicated in our epidemics of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Um, from an ecological perspective, the costs also are significant. Uh, we fertilized our acre of corn with a typical application of anhydrous ammonia nitrogen fertilizer before we planted. And just to fertilize that one acre of corn one time, a factory had to burn 2,000 cubic feet of natural gas to make the fertilizer for that acre of corn. So the inputs are, are significant from an ecological perspective, and uh, the outputs are significant from a health perspective. And from a cultural perspective, many of the farmers we met expressed real regret and a sense of loss over the ways in which farms had consolidated and gotten bigger under this corn-fed food system to the point where the high school in the town where our film was based uh, consolidated with the high school from the next town over while we were there because there just weren't enough students to fill both schools anymore. So there is the problem of feeding the growing population of the world. How do you do it unless this is the kind of agriculture you use? Absolutely. And I, I think that kind of agriculture will be a piece of the solution when it comes to feeding the world. But we have to ask ourselves, do we want to feed the world high fructose corn syrup? And uh, I think the answer is we might start looking towards a, a balanced global diet and a diet in which uh, there's increased local self-sufficiency rather than what we have right now, where a whole lot of the corn grown in the United States gets 
exported to places that would be able to grow their own food, but we dump our corn on their markets instead. So you're probably going to tell me in response to this next question that the subsidies are such a complicated thing that it's very hard to figure out what to do with them. But is it more complicated than just taking the subsidies from the corn and putting it to fruits and vegetables, let's say? Well, that's uh, that's one solution that has been proposed by a number of people, including uh, members of Congress um, from, from both parties, I should point out. But um, that is probably too simplistic a solution in that the massive investment our farmers have in the current food system is really significant. And uh, we have built our economy in the food world to expect a massive steady supply of corn. So we have to think hard before we convert that 90 million acres of corn into 90 million acres of tomatoes because our diets are going to have to shift significantly. We're going to have to figure out how to pick all those tomatoes. We're going to have to figure out how to store and process them. And uh, one thing that's nice about corn is it's easily stored and processed. Well, I I know that um, agriculture experts have said that if the nation were eating the the recommended diet with a certain amount of fruits and vegetables, that that we don't have the capacity to grow that much currently. So it sounds like like you want demand to change because by educating people, and that's one of the things that the Food Corps does. Uh, you want policies to help support healthy eating, and then you want the agriculture system to keep pace with these things. Is there anybody, is there any agency, is there any person, is there any way for all this to be seen in the same picture and for the whole business to be coordinated? I guess I think that's what the the whole concept of food systems is all about, is trying to have that conversation happen at every level, in the private sector and the public sector and in specific communities trying to feed themselves and in the global conversation at the UN around how are we going to feed a giant and growing global population sustainably, in particular as wealth increases and uh, developing countries start consuming more meat and high-input food. Um, There's no way to separate any one strand in this picture and truly solve the problem we're facing. But the way I see it is if we successfully address the different things you see in that prism of food, if we figure out a way to grow and market and consume food that is healthy for the land, healthy for all the people involved on the production end and the consumption end, and affordable to the people who are in need of food uh, and sustainable over the long run. If we figure out how to do that in food, then we figured out how to do that across our society. Well, I'd like to, to end with a question about whether you're optimistic about whether, where you see things going with this. Now, if you look at, I'll give you a domestic example and, a, and a, a global example. Domestically, you have different agencies dealing with these different concerns. So you have U.S. Department of Agriculture involved with the the food production part of things. You have the Centers for Disease Control and National Institutes of Health and Department of Health and Human Services care about the health thing. And there's some interaction to be sure, but it's not clear that these policies are in sync. Uh, If you look globally, you've got the World Health Organization, you've got the Food and Agriculture Organization, both parts of the U.N., but how much are they interacting around these issues? In the past, there's been very little interaction. Do you see signs that there's more collaboration, interaction, things happening in sync? I do, but I'll say I think the real leadership on that front is happening at the community level. Uh, It's things like local food policy councils that are bringing together around a single table in a town or city around uh, America to talk about 
how is our food produced? How is our food processed and marketed? And what happens when we eat it? And seeing the amazing innovation and progress, both in policies and in actual practice, coming out of food policy councils around the country, uh, led by citizens uh, in partnership with one another, gives me a real sense that these problems are solvable. We just have to have that same conversation happening on the global stage. Well, there certainly is a history of uh, social change starting at the local level and then percolating up till it hits federal agencies and national and global organizations and things like that. It'd be wonderful if that happened in this case, too. I think so. And I, I think what's really exciting is we're seeing it start uh, in schools in particular. Uh, we're seeing schools look at how do we teach kids about food in a positive, productive way and awaken them to the series of issues that orbit around food. And how do we grow, how do we cook and serve food in our schools that really is healthy for kids to eat? That leads nicely to the second of the two podcasts that we'll record shortly, namely what the Food Corps does. And it's nice that we'll be able to talk to you about that as its founder, but also welcome to service members who are in the field doing work for the Food Corps. Uh, so please join us for that podcast. And Kurt, thanks so much for joining us for this one. Thanks, Kelly. Our guest for this podcast is Kurt Ellis, co-founder and executive director of the Food Corps. Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org, where you'll find a variety of resources regarding food and food policy issues. Thank you.